chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 is the pivot. It's the pivot. It's where all this bad luck is going to turn on its head and the reversals are going to begin. The reversals are going to begin. Throughout that night, the king was unable to sleep, so he asked for the book containing the historical records to be brought as the records were being read to the king's presence. It was found written that Mordecai had disclosed that Bigathon and Tersa, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, had plotted to assassinate the king. So the pivotal statement is, in the night the king could not sleep. One of my mentors in seminary said, if you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep, the first question you should ask is, is there a reason that you've done this, God? Like, is this just like the goat's milk that I had last night? Or have you woke me up intentionally, God, for some kind of reason? This is the idea here. God has woken them up. Now, he brings up these giant historical records. And, and these are, this isn't a history book. This isn't like reading a history book of things that happened. This is like a, a record of just detailed facts. On this date, this happened. This date, this law was passed. On this date, this thing happened. It's just, and the reason he's brought this out to have them read to him in the middle of the night is to bore him to sleep. It is literally just to bore him to sleep. My friend, one of my fellow Bible teachers at my school, has this giant Akkadian grammar book next to his nightstand. And he he speaks like five different, he knows five different ancient languages and that kind of stuff. He's a language geek. And um, he's got this Akkadian language grammar book on his nightstand. And the only reason he has it there is if he can't sleep, he picks it up and he starts reading it. So it'll bore him to sleep. So, and he loves Akkadian. And he says it's boring. This is the idea. It's to bore them to sleep. So the king, so then in the, it just happens. It just happens. Hint, hint, hint. Wink, wink, wink. That he opens up in this giant record to the exact vent of Mordecai, the guy who's supposed to be impaled, rescuing the king. So the king asked, with great honor, was bestowed on Mordecai because of this. The king's attendants who served him responded, not a thing was done for him. So then the king said, who is this in the, who is in the courtyard? Now Haman had come to the outer courtyard of the palace to suggest the king hang Mordecai on the gallows, and that he had constructed for him. And the king attendants said to him, it is Haman who is standing in the courtyard. And the king said, let him enter. Now this is just irony upon irony upon irony because this is the hand of God. First, it's the middle of the night. And the king's like, who's in the courtyard? Who, who would be in the courtyard? Like, seriously, this is like you being at, like you're the, on the 13th floor of nationwide building, working in some cubicle office at 3 a.m. in the morning. You're like, hey, I got a great idea. Who else is in the building to share this with? It's like, no, just you. Okay, like nobody does this kind of stuff. Who's in the courtyard? But it just happens that Haman's there. Like, why is Haman at the king's palace in the middle of the night to tell him about Mordecai? Like, he seriously is, like, going to wake up the king in the middle of the night and, like, I want to kill Mordecai right now, tonight. Please let it happen. Like, all this is so ridiculous, yet it's so obvious that God's hand is at work. But the other thing that it's showing here is the king is so incompetent himself that even in the middle of the night, he has to find an advisor to help them figure out how to reward somebody. 
This isn't even a major decision of what to do with the neighboring country who wants to attack you. This isn't a major decision of what to do with issue 24 on the ballot. This is just how should I reward somebody? I mean, you, you could just like, let's bake him a cake, but he can't even make that decision on his own. He has to seek out an advisor. So this shows you how incompetent he is. He always has to have an advisor all the time to tell him what to do. So Haman came in, verse 6, And the king said to him, What should be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman thought to himself, Who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Now you know you're incredibly arrogant when you're thinking of the thousands upon thousands of people in the kingdom that exist. And Haman's like, oh, I can't think of anybody that would ever want to be honored by the king except for me. Like, there's nobody else out there. Like, that's so arrogant and so disconnected. So he immediately concocts, what would I like? Now notice, this shows you, this shows you what his desire for significance is. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king wishes to honor, let him bring royal attire with the king himself, has worn and a horse on which the king himself has ridden, one bearing the royal insignia. Then let his clothing and his horse be given to the one the king's noble officials, and let him then clothe the man whom the king wishes to honor, and let him lead him throughout the plaza and the city on the horse, calling him, so shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. The king says, what should I do for the man that I want to honor? And Haman thinks it's about him. And he's going to, this is his greatest, this, the genie has popped out of the bottle and said, I'll give you three wishes. And Haman doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for women. He doesn't ask for vacation, holidays, and private islands and boats. He asks to be respected and to be portrayed as the most successful man that there is in the kingdom. That's his God. You want to know what your idol is? It's the thing that you have nightmares about if you lose it. And it's the thing that when people say, if you have anything, what do you want? And that's the thing that you mention. Hey, that's the thing he asks. That's not what Mordecai wants. That's what Haman wants. Of all the things that he could think of, he says, I want to be put in front of everybody and everybody told how successful, how honorable, how respectful. I want everyone's respect. I want everybody's respect. And that shows you even more why Mordecai not respecting just jabs him. It just jabs him in the side. And the knife is getting twisted. Here's the first reversal. The king then said to Haman, verse 10, Go quickly, take the clothing and the horse. And Haman's like, yes, yes, yes. Just as you've described and do as you just indicated to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Don't neglect a single thing that you've said. Remember all those little details? Don't forget any of them. This is revealing. This is revealing. Verse 11, So Haman took the clothing and the horse, and he clothed Mordecai, and he let him about on the horse throughout the plaza of the city, calling him before him, So shall be the done the man and king wishes. That is the most awkward thing. Two enemies. He has to lead his enemy that he wants to impale around a horse and declare to everybody, this man is great. Mordecai knows that this guy is trying to kill him and wipe him out and exterminate his entire people group. And he has to sit there on this horse and be led by this man through the streets. 
And the narrator is brilliant here because he doesn't say anything more than that. He just lets your imagination picture the absolute awkward silence and the rigidity between the two as they're going through the city. You couldn't have picked two worse people to be put side by side and coupled together. And unlike buddy cop movies, they don't turn out to be best friends at the end of a good ordeal. This isn't good. But this is what's revealing. Then, verse 12, Mordecai again sat at the king's gate while Haman hurried away to his home, mournful with a veil over his head. Haman then related to his wife, Zersha, to all of his friends, everything that had happened to him. These wise men, along with his wife, Zersha, said to him, This shows you the low self-esteem of Haman. When this is all done, Mordecai goes back, and he just goes back to what he was doing. He sits down the gate, goes back to eating his apple. Haman throws a veil over his face to hide his face from everybody, runs back home, completely torn apart, and has to tell his wife and friends this horrible thing that happened to him. For Mordecai, his self-worth is not wrapped up in this. And so he is able to go, this is called filtering. When that angry person yells and screams at you and they don't know who you are and you don't know who they are because you did something that was, maybe you accidentally cut them off, but you didn't really cut them off, but they interpret that way and they get mad. You're like, you know what? I'm sorry that happened. I wish I could apologize to them, but I don't know them. They don't know me. They misinterpreted. I'm just going to go on with my life. And you go home and you forget about it. And you might tell your parent, your, your wife or your whatever, like, or husband, like, oh, this really ridiculous thing happened or whatever. But no. This person goes home, they're angry, they're going to kick the dog and smack the kids and scream and yell, and they're going to tell everybody how horrible this is, and they're going to say, I need to go and find that person and kill them. That's low self-esteem. This is the danger of not finding your purpose in God. In some ways this feels shallow, but I think we can all relate to this to a certain extent at different times in our life. We know people who can relate to this. Because this makes sense in just a basic human nature of having no God or not knowing your identity in Christ. When you know your identity in Christ, it starts going away. If you start feeling this kind of stuff, you, that, 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 these, are, these are emotions are warning lights on your dashboard of your car kind of a thing. When you start feeling angry or overly sad or happy at the wrong things, then those are warning lights to help you realize something is not right with me right now. And I need to reroute myself and my identity back in Christ. And if you find yourself being overcome by emotions in that kind of sense, and I'm not saying like, I'm not saying I have it all together either. Okay. Like I struggle with depression and other things and that kind of stuff. And we all struggle with our things, but usually when I start spiraling down or whatever, then that's a warning light. Well, okay, something's not right. I haven't spent enough time with God lately or, or I'm getting off track or something like that. Or, or if I find myself desiring and pursuing the wrong things like for power or success or people to like me or whatever, then, then I'm like, okay, something's not right here. And these be, I'm not saying that I don't struggle. I'm not saying that I don't have, that I have it all together and I'm perfectly rooted in Christ. And I'm not saying if you relate to this, you're sad because we all can relate to this in certain extents at different times in our life in different ways but hopefully not to the point where it's tearing us apart like him, like it's doing to him. And if it is, then it means that we're not, your identity is not rooted in Christ. And you haven't Shabbat or Sabbath enough with God lately. And these things become warnings to us 
that we need to get back with Christ. We need to get back with Christ. And we need to reroot ourselves in him and ask ourselves, why am I feeling this? I know this is humanly natural and normal, but not in the human in Christ sense is it natural and normal. Why am I feeling this and what do I need to do with Christ to get back to this place? The wife says, if indeed Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is Jewish, you will not prevail against him. No, you will surely fail before him. (laughs) Thanks, wife. Remember, they're superstitious. And she sees the signs. And so she says, look, if you constantly are going against him and you're trying to impale him and all this kind of stuff, and then something like this happens that completely turns the tables, in some ways she's kind of right. The tables are getting turned on her by God. But in other ways, she just sees it as a superstitious thing. Unwittingly, she says something that's actually more right than she could ever know. You have no hope of prevailing against this man. She sees the sign. She sees the reversal. And she says, this isn't going to work out for you. This is not the first time we've ever seen Caiaphas. Remember? Uh, Oh, one man should die for the sake of everybody else. And the narrator is like, he doesn't even know how right he is. God uses these people too. And their words are way more on than what they realize sometimes. And while they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. And they quickly brought Haman to the banquet. And Esther had prepared. Set banquet number two. Chapter seven, verse one. This is a huge mood killer in between two banquets for Haman. So the king and Haman, so the king and Haman came to dine with Queen Esther on the second day of the banquet of wine. The king asked Esther, "Banquet of wine? I love that it's just not a banquet anymore. It's just the banquet of wine. Forget the hors d'oeuvres. I just want the wine." The king asked Esther, "What is your request, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And it is your, what is your petition? Ask up to half the kingdom, and it shall be done." Queen Esther replied, If I have met with your approval, O king, and the king is so inclined to grant me my life and my requests for my people as my petition, for we have been sold, both I and my people, to destruction and to slaughter and to annihilation. If we had simply been sold as male and female slaves, I would have have remained silent, for such distress would not have been sufficient for troubling the king. Remember, we've already talked about this. Esther's in a difficult place right now because she, he, the king, is responsible for this. So she's got to get the, you can't insult the king and say, you did this because that's not going to win him over. So she's, her words have to be so precise. First, she no longer uses the third person anymore. She never says, if I've found favor, O king. She now uses a more personal, if I have found favor with you, O king. So she is using words carefully. No, normally you would not say you. You do not dress the king that way. Okay, when you come to the king, some guy would pull you aside and say, this is what you need to say to the king. This is how you talk to him. This is how you dress him. Don't talk about this stuff. Don't mention this. This is how you bow. You walk out backwards. They would tell you all this. Because if you did anything wrong, you might be killed. Or you definitely would not get what you want. And so you, this is improper court etiquette. You say, O king. You do not address him personally. You address his office, his kingship. She's addressing him personally. So she's becoming intimate with him. You, individually, my husband, my king, the one that I've been banqueting with the last several days. 
This is an emotional connection that she's making. Second, the king had granted her any wish or request. So he says, I'll give you any wish or request. She, he's using these interchangeably. She then comes along and separates them into two things. So he says, I'll give you any wish or request, implying whatever you want, I'll give it to you. She says, you've offered me any wish and request that I want. So she splits the two because now she's going to say, save my life and the life of my people. And so she takes his words and she splits them into two on things. She knows that he does not care about the Jews. So she's hoping that he'll save the Jews because she cares about the Jews and is connected to the Jews and he cares and is connected about to her. And that's the hope. This is the idea of like, well, if you don't care about it, then will you please do it for me because I do care about it. That's the implication. Third, she used the exact wording of Haman's edict. Then used the passive voice and sold for to allude to the transaction between the king. So she used the exact words of Haman's edict. So she's not taking anything out of context that he can't say, oh, no, that's not what it was. She's very precise. But then she also adds the word sold for to imply that this is a business transaction. This is merely benefiting a person, not really what's good for people and the empire. That word sold for implies that it just, it's, it's a business financial transaction that benefits this person. Not that it's something about the kingdom or the people in the kingdom. So now she's showing that this is not a kingdom thing. This is Haman's own personal pleasure that he bought. You like women and wine. Haman wants to destroy people who don't respect him. This is what he's buying. Fourth, she emphasized her and her people's extermination without mentioning the man behind it. She is very careful to leave the king out. She quotes the edict, but doesn't say who it is. Because if the minute she says it's the king, then that immediately puts him on the defensive. You know that even when people are Christ-like and sober, and you make an accusation against them, they get defensive. Let alone an alcoholic who is not sober, or is, sorry, an alcoholic who is not Christian, and is completely callous towards everybody. He's going to immediately get defensive and lash out. She's very precise and very intentional and calculated in what she is doing. And that's not bad. Remember Jesus said, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Gentle, loving, respectful, but wise, clever, and crafty, and calculated as well. And if you're led by the Spirit, that can be done in a godly way. That can be done in a godly way. Then the king responded, verse 5, to Queen Esther, Who is this individual? Where is the person to be found who is presumptuous enough to act in this way? This shows you also how disconnected he is. He's either so drunk or so callous towards this stuff that he doesn't even remember this law being passed. Remember, his, Haman came in and explained the extermination of these people, asked for requests. He threw him his segment. I mean, throwing some of your signet wing, you'd think that would be a pretty memorable thing. Why? Like, oh, why did I give my kid a credit card? I have no idea why I gave my kid the credit card to do whatever they want with it. What was it that they wanted? 
Like, okay, there's something wrong if you don't know why you gave your kid the credit card to spend it on whatever they want and what it is that they wanted it for. That's a pretty big deal. And that's not even anywhere close to a signet ring and the power that that has. And he has no memory of it. And we don't know why. It's an unintentional lack of memory. He literally don't, doesn't have a memory because he's drunk or he's just so disconnected and so many things that he does as a king that he doesn't remember anything. We don't know why, but he's such a fool here and not knowing what's really going on in his kingdom. He's completely disconnected. He doesn't even know what he does. Esther replied, the oppressor and the enemy is this evil Haman. Then Haman became terrified in the presence of the king and queen. And the rage the king arose from the banquet of wine and withdrew to the palace garden. And meanwhile, Haman stood to beg the queen Esther for his life, for he realized that the king had now determined a catastrophic end for him. So the king is so angry and so livid he has to walk out of the room. But here's the other thing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what to do. Most likely he's walking out of the room to try to find an advisor. He doesn't know what to do. So he's staying in the room and he's not going to ask Esther for advice because you don't go to a woman for advice, not this kind of a man. And he can't go to his vice regent for advice because vice regent that he's got two dilemmas here. One, he's got to now make a choice between his favorite wife and his favorite administrator, best friend and his wife. And they're now pitted at each other now. And he's got to kill his best friend for the sake of his wife, or he's got to kill his wife for the sake of his best friend. That's a difficult choice. Likewise, there is no advisor in the room for him to go to, so he's got to go out in the hall, probably wander through the halls and find an advisor to figure out what to do here. I can't make decisions like this on my own. What do they think I am, king? And then I'm drunk, okay, and overly emotional. He doesn't know what to do, so he leaves the room. So Haman throws himself. On her. Now she's on the couch, and he throws himself on her feet and legs, begging him. When the king returned from the palace garden, unable to find an advisor, likely, to the banquet wine, Haman was throwing himself down on the couch where Esther was lying. And the king exclaimed, Will he also attempt to rape the queen while I am still in the building? This is ridiculous. Okay, now, now, it's not ridiculous that powerful men violate women. But it's ridiculous that, like, seriously, you think that that's his first choice? Like, you're the king, and you're, the, your wife just accused him of exterminating everybody. Haman's freaking out. He, he knows that he's possibly going to die. You're angry, and you walk out. He doesn't know when he's coming back. And you think Haman just decided to start violating your wife as a result of that? Like, you're definitely drunk. Remember, it's probably just an excuse to kill Haman. Can you really kill Haman when you're also the man who killed, the, who passed the law as well? I mean, there's a certain sense that, yeah, you can. Leaders do it all the time. But at the same time, there's a sense of like, I'm guilty of this too. I passed this law. Haman passed this law. I can't just go killing Haman. Haman's very powerful. I can kill some lackey in my company in order to cover it up if I want, knowing I'm complicit. But you usually just can't kill an extremely powerful person because powerful people probably have a backup plan to protect themselves in that instant. But if he's guilty of violating my wife, well, then I can kill him for that. 
And we don't even have to bring up conspiracies and genocides and blackmail that he might have on me or any of that kind of stuff. And so it just happens to be coincidental that he's misinterpreting the scenario to give himself permission to kill the Haman for something completely different than what he should be killed for because then I don't have to face the scrutiny of all this kind of stuff. And so this is a shifting of the blame to something else to give my, oh, myself a way out. As the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's faith, face. And Harbanon, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Indeed, there is a gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke out in the king's behalf. It stands near Haman's home and is 75 feet high. And the king said, Hang him on it. And so they hanged him, Haman on it, very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's rage then abated. Here's another rule reversal. This is very CIA. Okay? Before the words even come, the sentence, kill him, even finishes coming out of his mouth, the guards are already have a black bag in their hands, throwing it over his head, shanghaiing him, and ready to carry him off. What guards just kind of stand around with black bags ready to throw over your head? You know what kind of guards do that? The kind of guards that know that a king is usually wanting things like that to be done. The fact that you have a black bag handy to throw over somebody's head and shanghai them away means that this is a request that the king makes often. Okay, so the CIA definitely got their lessons from this guy. They use carted off. And then one of the guys is like, hey, it just happens that there's gallows over here. We should put him on it. That's irony. So he's impaled, and Haman's now dead. We know that the threat is not over with. The threat's not even close to being over with. Because Haman is a tiny little pebble in this giant pond of an irreversible law. And so the origin that started this whole thing is gone. But can you stop the ripples once they've already gone? You can pull the rock back out of the river, but the ripples are still going. Nothing has changed. Nothing, absolutely nothing has changed. Yet for the king, it has.